0: Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Hello again. Today I want to talk about the glory of the Lord's Prayer doxology. Now most Christians are familiar with the Lord's Prayer because most traditional churches routinely include it in their Sunday services, not so? Well, while I was a local church pastor, I actually dropped it from our order of service simply because it had become a litany spoken or sung with very little thought to what it meant. Now, I've written about the Lord's Prayer before, but in this podcast and in the article which preceded it, I want to focus on the last phrase of the doxology, the liturgical form of praise to God. That's what a doxology is. It's a formula of praise to God and it's in Matthew 6.13, and says, Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And in particular, I want to zoom in on the word glory, because I believe that we need to grasp the fuller meaning of this divine attribute. Of the various translations of the Bible, only the New King James and the Holman's Christian Standard Bible show the doxology in the main body of the text. The others relegate it to a footnote with the comment, that only some manuscripts include these words. But the line taken by most commentators is that the best Greek manuscripts do not include the doxology. Uh, the question is what do they regard as the best? You see, the ancient Codex Washingtonius and the Textus Receptus, which we're familiar with, it's called the Received Text, which is derived from it, included the doxology. And John Chrysostolom, a late 3rd century father of the Church, expanded on the doxology in his writings. And even before that, the Dadache, which is called the Teaching of the Twelve, of the late 1st century, included a slightly truncated form of the doxology. And the fact that these are found in such ancient documents means that they were using this doctrine, were recognising this doxology at those times. And on the grounds of this alone, I would certainly include the doxology in the main body of the biblical text. So 1 Chronicles 29 verse 11 adds weight to this when it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. So the doxology has ancient roots going right back into Old Testament times. The Westminster Shorter Catechism was written in 1646-1647, By a synod, it's an official grouping of English and Scottish theologians and laymen, intending to bring the Church of England into greater conformity with the Church of Scotland. And this catechism still represents the heart of Reformed theology. And by this, I essentially mean the Calvinism of the last 75 years or so. Now, question number one of this catechism is phrased as, What is the chief end of man? The answer is then given as, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I suppose a more modern modern way of phrasing this statement would be, the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? Well, for me, this begs the question, how do we then glorify God? Is it through praising and worshipping Him? Is it through obeying Him, testifying to others how glorious God is? Now, it's surely all of those things, but it's more, much more. Certainly my understanding of God's purpose for all people is that we should all come to know Jesus, to become like him in this lifetime, and help others to do likewise. And I'll explain later how I connect this to glorifying God. This is how we glorify God. By coming to know Jesus, by coming like him, and by helping others to do likewise. But behind the Reformed statement of the purpose of humanity is, I suspect, a implied contention that we glorify God most by submitting joyfully to His meticulous control of our lives. And of course, this would only be sincere if we believed this core Calvinist doctrine. And I don't. I hold that we glorify God most by knowing Him in and through the Lord Jesus and by testifying through words and lifestyle to what we have come to know of his glorious nature. God's glory has more to do with his nature than the manifestation of his presence. On the Pentecostal charismatic end of the spectrum, teachers commonly understand the glory of God as his awesomeness or even as the radiance that issues from him. And yes, God, of course, is awe-inspiring and, yes, radiant. Yet I doubt that this describes the actual essence of his glorious nature and being. A key scripture that sheds light upon God's glory is Exodus 33, verses 12 to 23. It reads as follows. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. And if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people, and the Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anybody know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me you and your people from the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. (laughs) Now, this account is very well known and mainly self-explanatory. However, here are two things to think on. One, God's response to Moses' request, show me your glory, was that he would cause his goodness to pass by. And the two words that he used to amplify this goodness were mercy and compassion. Therefore, surely the central idea here is that God displays his glory to humans through his goodness, mercy, and compassion. Two, Human beings cannot fully experience the manifestation of God himself in the physical realm. His appearance is described as the sun shining in all its brilliance, Revelation 1.16, and we all know that we cannot look into the physical sun without blinding ourselves. So, in the Exodus event, God spared Moses this sort of damaging experience by covering him up until only the afterglow of his presence was visible. In the heavenly realm, we will be able to meet with God face to face. But we cannot do this in the present physical life. You cannot see my face, he said, for no one may see me and live. But Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God and we can see him and live. You see, in this world, we just cannot behold God's glorious presence Yet we can see him indirectly in his goodness, mercy and compassion in and through Christ Jesus. However, this has never been enough for materially obsessed humanity. So God incarnated on earth as Jesus of Nazareth, who said, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9. Yes, we can see him indirectly through his goodness and mercy and compassion, but we've always been like Moses from the earliest days saying, show us your glory, Lord. Show us yourself, Lord. And here comes Jesus of Nazareth. He says, look, here I am. If you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. I've written a book on the nature of Jesus uh, and (laughs) spoken about it so many times. But just in case someone is... Reading or listening to me for the first time, then please just consider the following Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1 19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, for Christ and in Christ, all the fullity, fullness of the days he lives in bodily form. That's in Colossians 2 9. And then in Hebrews 1 1 3. It says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. And then, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. See it? The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. So, if we want to know what the glory of God is like, We need only to look to the life, ministry and teachings of Jesus. There we find wisdom, grace, mercy, kindness, compassion, forgiveness and any other noble quality we can think of. Divine glory in bodily form. That's what we find. Now going back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism statement that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, Well, the bigger and more glorious picture surely now emerges. To glorify God, you see, is to contemplate and testify to Jesus' nature and character. That gives God the glory. See, here is our Lord, Jesus, the manifestation of God. That glorifies the triune God. And it's also to live out these qualities in our world because our testimony to his glory must surely transcend just words and emotions, right? Right? So, to enjoy Him forever is to enter into a living and eternal relationship with Him in this life and the next, and go from glory to glory. So, this is why my theological focus centers on Jesus, and why I have promoted Christocentricity and Jesus centeredness for over four decades. It's so easy, you see, to get lost in an intellectual appreciation of God and a sort of a mind centered witness to the world. It is just as easy to get lost in the emotion and sensory wonder of the manifestation of God's glory in our world. But if we look to Jesus, then everything falls into place. Let me quote to you from 2 Corinthians 3, 7-18 to 18, as I end this truth talk. Now, the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. And then so much will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now, in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It does not be removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory, Are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May God bless you. May his glory shine upon us and through us and out of it. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth Is The Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, Truth Talks.